Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. On today's episode, we're going to cover a subject of particular interest to me, which is healthcare innovation. One of the biggest challenges we'll face in coming decades will be dealing with the changing age distribution of our population. Baby boomers are retiring in huge numbers, and the need for high-quality care will become more and more important as they age. Genomics is making it possible to predict, diagnose, and treat diseases more precisely and personally than ever before. It could improve individual health by personalizing medicine, allowing individuals to actively participate in understanding and shaping their health profiles. Importantly, this technology has also been a key tool in the creation of a viable and dynamic COVID-19 vaccine. However, healthcare innovation is a very broad subject that can sometimes get into the weeds very fast. So to help break down this space and discuss the trends and opportunities in the genomic health revolution, I'm very happy today to be joined by Nick Leventis. Nick is a senior healthcare analyst for the Innovator Strategy here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management and has over 12 years of experience exclusively covering healthcare. So Nick, welcome to Insights Now. Thanks, David. It's nice to be with you today. So to start with, let's discuss the public health environment in the United States right now. What do you think the biggest challenges are that we're facing? Sure. The biggest challenge today is that healthcare spending is almost 18% of GDP in the United States. And the baby boomers are just starting to retire and consume healthcare. Think about 10,000 people a day are turning 65 and aging into Medicare. And the other issue we have is that chronic conditions are on the rise. In 2015, 30 million people had a chronic condition. That's rising to 80 million people by 2030. And the cost of care for people with chronic conditions is nearly $1.1 trillion. That's 10 times more expensive than patients that don't have a chronic condition. And when I mean chronic condition, what I'm saying is think of things like diabetes, cancer, and other cardiovascular diseases. Clearly, a lot of issues here. How has our growing understanding of the human genome uh, helped unlock solutions to some of these public health issues? Absolutely. Let's start with cost first. In 2003, it cost nearly $100 million to map a human genome. 16 years later, the cost was down to $1,000. And today, we're somewhere in the five dollars to $900 range per genome. Now, estimates vary, but we've only actually sequenced somewhere between 2 and 10 million human genomes. The biggest beneficiary has been in oncology. And what we've been able to do is find specific genes in many different cancers, EGFR in lung and colorectal cancer, uh, HER2 in breast cancer. And finding these genes has led to the development of drugs that specifically target these proteins. And although we've decoded the genome, we only understand a small fraction of it. 
and we're only able to drug a very small percentage of it, only roughly about 20%. Well, clearly DNA sequencing helps us understand the genome, and you just mentioned some of its benefits in terms of oncology, um, but what else can it do? Well, David, that question is worth a series of podcasts in and of itself, but I'll do my best to hit the major themes. So let's start with cancer. The typical way of fighting cancer has been through chemotherapy and radiation. And this impacts a lot of cells, and there's a lot of unintended consequences. Think hair loss, weakened immune system, etc. But we've been able to develop a new class of drugs called IO or immuno-oncology drugs that actually harness the power of the immune system to fight these cancer cells. So how does this work? Essentially, your body can't fight the cancer that it can't see. And many cancer cells use a pathway to hide from the body's T cells or the first line of defense in the immune system. And if these cancer cells remain hidden, they're able to replicate undetected by the body. So these drugs block the pathways and prevent cancer cells from hiding, which actually allows the body to kill these cells on its own. Let's talk about liquid biopsy. The liquid biopsy is the ability to take a blood sample, typically a small vial of blood, and we are able to determine whether or not you have cancer. Now, there's two types of liquid biopsy today. There's MRD testing, which is known as minimal residual disease. And what we are doing is think of a patient who had cancer, and then they went into remission. But you're always worried about whether or not the cancer returns. So we're able to actually take a blood test and determine whether or not that cancer has returned. And this technology is getting so good that we can actually determine whether or not person is having a reoccurrence of cancer 10 months before current CT imaging can detect it on film. That is huge. Now, this isn't for all cancers. It's only for uh, one particular cancer. But uh, the point here is that we're on the verge of discovering a lot more of these. The other type of liquid biopsy is uh, pan-cancer screening. And essentially, what we're going to be able to do in the future, not today, is take a blood test when we go for our annual physical, and then they will run that just like they run your cholesterol level, and they will be able to determine whether or not you actually have cancer. That's where we're going. DNA sequencing has also helped the advancement of proteomics. Proteomics actually focuses our research efforts down to the single cell level, whereas before we didn't have the technology to drill down to the single cell. So think of uh, a tumor, for example. We usually analyze that on a molecular basis, and what you see are the predominant mutations, and this is how we will actually treat that tumor. However, we know that biology happens at the single cell level. Some cells may have different mutations in the tumor, and those mutations actually drive cancer reoccurrence. Another thing that DNA sequencing can do is uh, it helps us with cell and gene therapy. This is a new type of science where we're actually using cell and gene therapy to modify cells to actually repair and reconstruct uh, defective proteins. Another exciting area 
where DNA sequencing has had a profound impact is mRNA. mRNA technology, I'm sure most of us are familiar with because it's the backbone of two of the large um, COVID-19 vaccines today. And essentially what we're doing is using mRNA technology uh, to uh, elicit an antibody response from your cells in order to uh, protect ourselves from COVID-19. This would not have been possible without the help of DNA sequencing. DNA sequencing has also helped us to decode the immune system. Now, this is early days, but uh, if we are able to do this, we are enabling the development of personalized medicine by understanding how the immune system detects and treats disease. So it can be really hard to find that free-floating cancer in your blood uh, when we think about liquid biopsy. But if we can understand what the immune system is doing, we can back into what the immune system is detecting, and then we can actually treat that disease. So there's really a lot of exciting stuff here, and a lot of this is cutting edge, and we're only scratching the surface today. This is all really exciting stuff in terms of innovations here. Of course, part of, it, part of the challenge here is getting it to patients, getting it to consumers. And we've seen you know, drug spending has been on a steep rise. It's expected to reach $1.6 trillion in 2025, excluding the spending on, on COVID vaccines. And this does have important implications for consumers, healthcare systems, global access to medicines. So I guess two-parter. One, why are drugs so expensive? And then second, what is the outlook for drug pricing and how do you balance these risks uh, as an investor? Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question. I would say the main driver of increasing drug costs is based on two factors. Number one, the introduction of new drugs. So if we have a new seller gene therapy drug that comes to market and it's priced at a million dollars per treatment, that's obviously going to drive total drug spending up quite a bit. Number two is just the development of drugs. Today, it takes nearly two and a half billion dollars and 10 to 15 years of development to get a drug to market. It's incredibly expensive and it takes a really long time. Now on the flip side of this, the good thing to, to remember here is that nearly 90% of drugs that are dispensed are generic drugs. So these cost very little to the consumer with insurance. Most of them are free. Sometimes they're a $5 copay. So really, we're talking about 10% of drugs that really drive uh, that number that you quoted. If I think about where drug pricing is going here in the future, this is just a, a, a forecast and it could be wrong, but generic drugs are likely to remain deflationary in the low single digit neighborhood and branded drugs are likely to be inflationary on a list price, but after discounts and rebates, they're roughly about flattish on a net basis. That's what current forecasts look like. Now, your last part of the question related to uh, the risks from an investor perspective, and, and I personally think that any meaningful drug pricing legislation that can pass Congress on a bipartisan basis would be a very positive catalyst for the space. Of course, the devils would be in the details, but um, you know that's anyone's guess when that actually might happen, given the lack of cooperation in government today. But I'm holding out. I'm an optimist, and, and I think it would be well-received if we could get there. So perhaps one small silver lining from the pandemic is the acceleration of the drug approval process by the FDA. 
Do you think this can be repeated for future drug approvals, or if not, why not? So I would say that the COVID vaccine uh, was probably the fastest drug that uh, we will see in the foreseeable future in terms of development. And quite frankly here, the science was pretty amazing. We got the sequence of this in January. Uh, it took a couple of weeks to develop it, and then we went into preclinical animal testing. Uh, that went for a few months. By July of 20, uh, we were actually putting this in human. And by December of the same year, we had emergency use authorization for the vaccine. This is probably the fastest uh, uh, we will see. Uh, quite, quite amazing, frankly, and shows you the power of science. But uh, from a bigger picture perspective, the average drug is two and a half billion dollars and 10 to 15 years to develop. I think a major accomplishment would be if we could drop the development cost to one and a half billion and get that drug to market in eight to 12 years. That would be huge in and of itself. Uh, as the technology gets better and we start using more algorithms and machine learning to test compounds earlier, to, whether or not, uh, to determine whether or not they work, uh, I, I think that will speed the drug development process tremendously. So my expectations are it will get better, but I don't think it will ever be as good as uh, getting a COVID vaccine to market. Looking more broadly, what do you think the biggest opportunities and obstacles are impacting innovation in the healthcare environment? The biggest opportunities are really the development of drugs across a, these therapies that we discussed, whether it be liquid biopsy, proteomics, going after the immune system, using cell and gene therapy to actually reprogram cells. That is where um, I think the biggest opportunities lie. I think the biggest obstacle here is time. And new therapies are exciting, but they need to be proven safe and effective. And we can't do that overnight. It takes time. So I think that's by far the biggest obstacle. And then the next question is, how quickly can the regulatory bodies keep up with the changing pace of science? Because a lot of what we're doing is we're learning as we're going, and it takes time to make sure that those regulatory bodies feel safe and comfortable uh, so that they can actually allow this market, uh, these drugs to get to market. Certainly plenty of exciting opportunities. Um, this has been fascinating, Nick. Are there any resources you would suggest to someone who's trying to learn about these concepts? What I would say is the science is changing so quickly that the best source of information are different medical journals like JAMA and The Lancet. Those would come to mind. And if you want something less technical, I watched a, a good documentary called Human Nature, which I thought did a nice job explaining the basics of CRISPR for gene editing. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us, Nick. Thank you, David. And thank you all for listening. Please tune in to our next episode, where I'll be discussing the growth of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and whether these assets should have a place in portfolios. Oh, then I invite you to download the JP Morgan Insights app for iPhone and iPad, which is another way to access this podcast and all of our timely insights on the markets and economy at your fingertips. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support an